was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to be joined by my guest, Broadway composer Gary William Friedman. Gary William Friedman composed the Broadway shows The Me Nobody Knows and Platinum, and he also added music to the plays The Survivor and The Sign in Sidney Burstein's Window for their productions. His other musicals include Laugh a Little, Cry a Little, Taking My Turn, which aired on TV, and Bring in the Morning. He is also the author of Love, Linda, which starred his wife, Stevie Holland, and on TV he worked as the composer for the hit children's series, The Electric Company. On January 30th, he'll be at 54 Below, presenting a concert of a revised version of Platinum, titled Platinum Dreams, a concert no theater fan will want to miss. You can find tickets to that event at the link in the episode description. And now, without further ado, here's Gary William Friedman. So, I would love to um, begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? As a, as a, as a child, my mom was a singer. She, she had this glorious voice. She sang mostly, actually, Yiddish songs and in Brooklyn, where I was born and brought up. And, and, and she loved show tunes as well. Actually, on the corner of Brighton Beach, there was a theater called the Brighton Beach Theater. And they they actually uh, produced their like touring companies of different Broadway shows, etc. So that was actually the beginning of of my of, of my theatrical you know well my theatrical beginnings. <laughs> oh, yes. And did you know that what you wanted to do in the theater was right right from the beginning? Or? Um, yeah, exactly. That you know, it's interesting. There are a couple of things that that it's almost from the moment of birth. <laughs> Charles, uh, it was like music, theater, and and saxophone. <laughs> that order. It was a strange thing. I, I and I never wavered. My my life has been one constant arc uh, that never wavered. Uh, I, there were some side trips here and there. Uh, you know, I was a, a teacher in the New York City school sy- system for a while. I don't know if you knew that. I actually taught math and science in, in different schools. But that was just to have my, you know, like a day gig, right? Uh, but, but but basically, to you know, to refer to your question, it was just, that was it. It was amazing from the very beginning to this moment when we're talking. I never waited from from that from that route oh yes and once you got interested at first where did you study and well I I went I attend, I actually graduated from Brooklyn College and then I went uh, for another two years beyond that which is sort of tantamount but not quite a, a master's degree in education and then after that I went on to Columbia University where I uh, studied uh, electronic music composition with Yusachevsky, and uh, that was a, a fantastic experience. But you know that was the extent. Also, 
I studied privately uh, composition with, um, I don't know if you know these people, but Hall Overton was a, a wonderful teacher at the time, and Jan Meyerowitz, a, a classical composer who, who was a professor at Brooklyn College, whom I met at Brooklyn College, and he was just fantastic, and uh, I studied with, with him. So th that was the extent of my, you know, of my background education, which was a lot. <laughs> right. And how did your experience with electronic music and studying it go on to help you? Well, it's interesting. Actually, the I studied is a famous lab in the in the '60s at Columbia, where, as I said, Yusachevsky and Boulantarel studied, and we were creating this whole new this whole new electronic music situation. In fact, you know the the Moog synthesizer. You know that, right? Yes. Yes. Well, Bob Moog was in my class. We we were we were classmates. That that's, and he was telling me about about this machine he was working on that that would uh, that would in effect synthesize all this music that we were working with uh, at this uh, in at this room. And I said, "Wow, Bob, that's a fabulous idea!" And he went on to create the so-called Moog synthesizer. Any event, how it, it, it actually the year that I studied. I was studying with Yusachevsky at Columbia. I was asked to do music for a Spanish production of Macbeth for Joe Papp. That it was a traveling a traveling show, and I actually was asked by Osvaldo Rio Franco, who was the director, to create a score. So I used all my electronic. The score was actually all electronic. Uh, electronically composed, and in fact, in that in that uh, show, uh, Raúl Julia made his debut. Oh yes, and how do you approach writing music for plays? And well, now, when you say approach it, do you mean in what way? Emotionally, physically, or how? Um, well, once you get the text of the play, what is your sort of process in terms of figuring out how? To... Well, it's a, it's a lot of thinking, a, a lot of uh, thinking and and wondering and 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 hoping <laughs> that the inspiration will not will not leave me. But basically, it's it, it's it's all intuitive, Charles. It's it's something that comes to me in a very natural way. I don't really uh, worry too much about it because I know the inspiration will will occur, and I will just go on and create exactly what is asked of me. Oh, yes. And what was it like to work in the freeform improvisation ensemble, and how did that come about? Well, it's I uh, actually was uh, studying saxophone uh, with a teacher who lived in Manhattan, so I would take the BMT subway from Brooklyn all <laughs> into Manhattan by myself, lugging my saxophone. And after I, a lesson, one, one afternoon, I was walking back to the subway, when this this guy approached me and he said, "Hey," he said, "You look like a sort of an interesting musician. What is that? A saxophone you got there?" And I said, "Yeah, it is." He said, "Well, he said my name is Burton Green." <laughs> he, he actually picked me up. It was the weirdest thing. And and he said, "You know," he said, I "I'm working with this group, but we're a bunch of guys in Brooklyn, and and uh, we're creating this this uh, new approach to playing, uh, totally improvisational, not, nothing written down." I said, wow, man, that, that's like pretty hip, you know, it's amazing. And, and he said, yeah, he said, why don't you come down to rehearsal? Maybe, you know, maybe you'd like to, to, to join us. 
Well, Charles, it was the what was it was so wild. I mean, to oh. to meet like uh, you know these these uh, like Alan Silva, who was the bass player, and and Burton himself, who was a character but brilliantly talented, and we just started playing. And and how did it work? Is that we we'd sit around almost waiting for for one of the instrumentalists to hit a note or a series of notes, and it would go around, and each one. Uh, we each of us would pick up that that whatever would be the series of notes and improvise on it, and and each of us would sort of take it and and create it and 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 uh, and and pro- just keep keep developing it until it became a, a really very exciting musical experience. And so, I don't know, does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. It definitely does. And what do you find are the unique skills that it takes to improvise them? Well, again, interesting. You know, but it, I got it. I think maybe it, it takes a lot of knowledge. You you have to really have a strong, basic knowledge of music in general, harmony, theory, etc., and also a certain character, uh, of, like fearlessness, and not be afraid to certainly uh, to to somehow explore areas that have not been explored, nor will they be explored again. So that that that. You know that is, and also you have to have the uh, confidence in the with whom the the men you work, or men and women you're working with. You have to know that wherever you go, they will follow you musically, and you will follow them musically, and develop whatever whatever will be or is to be developed until it reaches some kind of wild, fantastic acme or whatever <laughs> and a peak. And then it disperses, and that was the actually the arc of our of our compositional uh, creations. Oh yes, and how did that work influence your symphonic work, and and how did you begin with symphonic work? Well, uh, <clears throat> it, it was about clearing one's ears and mind. Uh, the 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 improvisational aspect freed me in a way. It, it freed me. I was I learned I knew so much about music, uh, 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 and and I it, it could have and has inhibited many people. And there is the knowledge of too much music and too much of the of the you know you can't have perfect fifths and God forbid you break the rules. So that was that 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 amount of of um, how can I say. Uh, uh, information somehow inhibits people. Uh, so I, somehow the the improvisational aspect of working with these people uh, freed me and enabled me to uh, to be, as I say, fearless. Oh yes. And what was your first major symphonic piece? Once you well, it, you again uh, studying with Jan Meyerowitz uh, and Hall Overton. Uh, you know, we're talking major, major, heavy, heavy studies of counterpoint and, and, and orchestration and harmony and theory. So there was, I was always attracted to uh, classical music. I was a big fan of Igor Stravinsky growing up. And and on the other end of that, it was like Stan Kenton, <laughs> Stan Kenton Orchestra. And then, and then I started listening to Charlie Parker on saxophone. So all these influences came to... to a, to a head, and uh, I wanted to create a wider palette of sound, and that was that was so-called classical music, and so 
uh, as a saxophone player, in those years, and I think it's still so today, most reed players, if you're a saxophonist, you probably also play clarinet, as I did, and you also play double and triple on flute. So these these are the three things I, I you know these are the three instruments I mastered as as a young as a young player, and and um, so anyway that's why I was attracted to the clarinet per se, and I somehow had a need to create a large work for the clarinet, so which ended in my in my clarinet concerto. Oh yes, and how did you ultimately decide to sort of? change focus from symphonic work to um to theater and, and well i didn't it was never like a decision it was just somehow an ongoing uh investigation of other ways and uh, to, to create music so it was more, more like curiosity it wasn't like a decision per se uh sometimes the the decisions were made for me like i was offered i was offered employment you know offered commissions and stuff like that so it was it, so it wasn't as if i i it was a uh, a decision that i made sometimes the decisions were made for me and you mentioned earlier writing music for julius caesar and another place where you wrote a lot of music for plays was la mama and how did you become involved with them at first and well <clears throat> la mama was uh i was again i was a kid in Brooklyn, and uh, a lot of my f people I knew in Brooklyn, friends, were, were actors, and they ended up acting, or began acting at La Mama, this 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 wild, interesting, and exotic club in, in, in Lower Manhattan. So one of my friends uh, said, you know, Gary, you, you should get to know Ellen Stewart, and maybe you could, you know, work with her. And so I went down to uh, to La Mama and introduced myself to Ellen. And uh, through that, I met people like Paul Forster and Tom Ian, Jean-Claude Vanatelli. I ended up writing uh, scores for all, you know, background music for all their plays. And uh, that was an incredible experience. You know, it was very exciting, you know, knowing that, that whole new experimental theater generation and which we all grew up together. So that's how it started. And how has the off-Broadway scene changed from the experimental days of La Mama to working Well, again, this is my opinion, and it's only my opinion, but I, I just think that somehow, how can I say this, you know, the joy and even the danger of off-Broadway doesn't exist anymore. <sighs> and, I, and I think that I miss that. I miss the danger of it. I miss. I, I miss the. Uh, how can I say? Also, in danger, there was there was innocence and and, and hope and and a way of creating a new form of, of theater. And I I don't see that anymore. I I think one reason for that is is the mounting financial demands. Also, people are afraid to take chances as as well as 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 quickly as they did in the past. Oh yes, and. Your first um, Broadway full musical was The Me Nobody Knows, and how did that come about? The well, man, that, that's a <laughs> that's like an interview in itself. We could take like an hour to talk about how that happened, <laughs> Charles. But uh, anyway, so yes, it all started with uh, Herb Shapiro, who was a you know who he was he was actually at this time back in the uh, in the sixties he was a professor in Trenton. 
and uh, he was looking for a composer for a an opera he was working on. And again, a mutual friend uh, recommended me to him as the composer for this opera that he was beginning to work on. And and so we became sort of friendly and 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 wor workers together and collaborators. And in the in the course of working together, he had mentioned to me that that he was he was performing th this book that he had read called The Me Nobody Knows. He was performing certain segments of it in the streets of Trenton. And I, I said, well, man, like that sounds like very wild. There's something about that, that that's really very exciting. He said, actually, it's true. He said, I, I, what we do is we read from this book that was published by Stephen M. Joseph, who was a teacher in the New York City pu uh, public school system. And uh, in the course of his school, his, his whatever, his teaching, they were talking about autobiographies. And he came up with this title. He said, well, read about, write about the me nobody knows. That is, in your autobiography, who is the you that nobody knows? So hence the title, The Me Nobody Knows. And uh, and her picked up on that and started performing excerpts from the book in on the streets. Anyway, I went, Charles, the minute he said this to me, it was like a light bulb went off in my brain. And I said, man. I, I said, I really don't know if, I, if what I'm even talking about, but I have a feeling this is a musical. <laughs> so, and, and anyway, but I, he said, no kidding, man. He said, well, like, like run with it. See what you can do with it. Anyway, I had known this uh, producer by the name of Jeff Britton, and uh, for whatever reasons, which is a whole other interview, but in any event, I, I took the idea, I, I knocked on his door, on his office in, on Broadway, and I said, Jeff, I you know, here's this idea, blah, blah, blah. One thing led to another, and he freaked over. Charles, he said, I don't know, man. I, I think this is a terrific idea. I, I, I'm going to see what I can do with this, Gary. Anyway, magically, he somehow got us to Edgar Bronfman. You know, Edgar Van, the multimillionaire. Uh, and and he, he said, I'm going to get an audition for us to perform some of the songs that I had written by that time for Edgar in his office. And Charles, lo and behold, I had been working with a young girl by the name of Melissa Manchester oh. and, and, and also another friend of mine, Jose Fernandez. And we, I taught them the, so, the few songs that I had written. And we went up to Edgar Bronfman's office and somehow he got a piano in, he, they moved the piano in, and, and we all huddled around the piano. I sat down, and Melissa and Jose, and we sang a few of the songs that I had written at, up to that point. Maybe I had, I had written maybe five songs, Charles. Well, when I had done, we were finished. He, he was silent for maybe a hundred years, <laughs> it seemed. And he said, you know, Jeff, what do you think it would cost to put this show on? And Jeff told him, and Charles, he took out his, his checkbook and wrote out a check for the show. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine how wild that is? And it, it was magical. It was one of those things that happened, you know, it has never, ever happened again in my life. <laughs> but in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed, and in a way, I'm cursed, because I thought, hey, it's, this is as easy as it gets to get a show on Broadway. Well, it never happened again that way, but thank goodness it did happen that way, and, and the rest is history. Right, right. 
And how did you first meet Will Halton? Well, Will Will came in to uh, to my life because uh, at the outset, Herb was writing a few lyrics. He 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 hit a wall with the lyrics. He he he. So after he wrote a, a few of the initial songs like "This World." Uh, and and dream babies, uh, he he had a, he hit a wall, and he he and, and so what happened at that point is I decided to actually go to the book itself, and and Charles I actually set some of the poems in the book to music directly, and then we I hit a wall with that because there's so much there was so much I could do, so. Uh, both Jeff and Bob Livingston, who was by then uh, the director, came uh, somehow met Will and convinced him to come aboard. And uh, Will was coming off uh, a, a sort of a flop called Come Summer he had done on Broadway. Oh. And he was he was in a very bad way emotionally. But somehow the, there was, again, the magic of the me uh, brought him out of his doldrums and uh, we met. And we sort of got along very well. And the first song we wrote together was uh, If I Had a Million. And uh, he was aboard, and, and he ended up writing most of the, most of the lyrics for the, for the show. And do you prefer to have the lyrics done either first or second during the writing process? Well, you know, that, that's an age-old question. <laughs> it's, it, actually, I'm most comfortable with getting lyrics first. Especially if if it's a, if it's a theater song, because I think the lyrics are really primarily important in theater. Uh, of course, it's the opposite in in you know classical music where you know it, it's, it's instrumental. It comes from a different place, different part of my creative brain. But uh, it, usually, if the lyrics are, uh, come come, they usually inspire me uh, to to create. The, the proper music for it. Yes. And what made you decide to be the orchestrator and arranger of your own work as well as you were on your other shows as well? Well, it, it, it was never a decision, Charles. I, I always, there was nothing, you know, due to my experience in classical music, where, of course, obviously you're, you're composing <laughs> and, and orchestrating and, and doing everything. So it was just a natural thing for me to, to think that, well, no matter what I do, even if I'm writing for, for the theater, then, of course, I will uh, address the songs the same way I would do any classical composition. And if I'm able to and willing and inspired to, then why why shouldn't I? And, of course, it keeps the, the music with a sound that is uh, you know, extremely my own and very personal, which I prefer. And... What were some of the changes made to the show during the transfer from Off-Broadway to the Orpheum Theater? Or from, oh, from the Orpheum Theater. Right, right. Well, actually, there were no changes. We, oh. we just did the show exactly as it was done uh, at the Orpheum. The only difference or the changes were uh, due to union uh, there were some union restrictions on the size of the orchestra, the band. So I added a cello and another couple of instruments to the orchestration. And it filled it out a little, and I'm really happy I did. So it, it gave a little more sound source and excitement to the, to the, to the uh, presentation of the music. But that's actually all that changed. Oh, yes. 
And what do you think made it so successful with Broadway audiences? Well, how can I say this? You know, uh, what made it successful? First of all, it was honest. And it was it was it was heartbreaking and, and, and tragic and at the same time inspirational and hopeful. Uh, the fact that the, the show didn't have a book writer per se, you know, every every word that's spoken is taken directly from the children's writings. So it had that efficacy. It had that immediacy. It, it was, it, and, and, and no one could question any aspect of, of the book because it was actually written by the children themselves. So it had a, a you know, that it was based on truth. And, and it was, it was something very, very beautiful and, as I say, and, and, and timeless. And would you, speaking of it being timeless, would you want to revive it today or have you considered bringing it back? Oh my God! Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it would be it, it, the show is as relevant and powerful today as it ever was, Charles. And I remain forever hopeful that it will it will come back. Uh, there have been, you know, there have been child different people, different producers wanted it took took you know, took options on it. Uh, but the usual, the the one, how can I say this? The one problem, maybe was that every every producer who who wanted to produce the show had a need to make changes in the show. Oh. They use words like, "Oh, it's got to be contemporaryized." Mm -hmm. You know, it's got to we got to change the arrangements. We got to add this, we got to add that. But, you know, when it's all said and done, this this show was not a revision. It's a revival. And people have a need to 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 make revisions in the text, etc. And that dogged uh, many of the revival and revisional, uh, uh, hopeful producing aspects, which which we I, I must say I, I we we sort of um, doggedly didn't not want to have happen to the show. We wanted to leave it as an original. I mean, it'd be like taking My Fair Lady and starting to change, <laughs> change the libretto or something. Right. Why? You know, if it, if it worked, you know, why, you know, take out the, take out the improvements, as they say. <laughs> and one of the ways in which the show does live on today is as a television special. And how did that happen for it to be presented that way? Well, there was this, uh, again, a friend. You know, it's amazing how many things in life, uh, how many opportunities one has just by knowing people, you know, the, the so-called right people at the right time in your life. Uh, Harlan Kleiman was a friend, and he was a producer, and he was the biggest uh, amazing fan of the Me Nobody Knows, and all he wanted to do in his life is make a movie of the Me Nobody Knows. <laughs> and that's what he did. He arranged to have it, uh, you know, filmed. And uh, he is the reason that that show uh, was done. And I know a lot of the people involved with the Me Nobody Knows went on to be involved with the electric company. And how did this happen? With the... Well, again, it's, it's interesting. When the Me closed, the electric company was just sort of, it was in its infancy, it was beginning. And the, the producers of the electric company, and I think correctly and, and amazingly uh, sensitively, believed that the, the actors who they saw performing in the me 
would be perfect for the same for, for, for to perform on this sort of fledgling, exciting new venture called the Electric Company. So actually, they went about hiring most of the cast members, like including Hattie Winston and Melanie Henderson, and and that's actually what happened. They 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 didn't raid us because we were already closed, but but it, they they decided and they believed and, I, and now in retrospect, correctly, to use those very actors as, as part of their, as part of the electric company. Yes. And in what ways was writing for the electric company writing for a different audience than the Me Nobody Knows? And Well, it wasn't, look, an audience is an audience. Okay. It doesn't matter. It, 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 I, I didn't use any special metrics or, or my attitude approach to music has never changed. It's never wavered. It, it has always been right the, the the most beautiful, best, fabulous. You know, I can that right. that somehow uh, you know I was blessed with some gene that enabled me to do this or genes. So uh, it's not as if I wrote differently for the for the electric company. In fact, the beauty of the electric company is that it wrote it, it, they 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 related to young people on a very mature level with, uh, you know, they never wrote down or, or played down to children. And I, that was exactly how I, I approached it also. I, I didn't write differently because I was writing for young people. And what was it like attaining fame from this very successful TV show? And <laughs> well, it, it's funny. I, actually, I was never aware that I was famous. <laughs> it's it, the only reason I I thought maybe I was famous because my kids my kids knew that I did it, and, and their friends knew that I wrote Spider Man. So that that was like a big that was a big plus for me as a, as a daddy. But actually, I was you know, I was never really a, aware that that I was famous, as you you know, if you want to use that word. So I just I was just it was a gig. I, I did the best I could, and, and I was happy that I was able to, to get the opportunity to do it. Oh, yes. And what was the strict weekly schedule like for it and that, having that sort of discipline? Well, that was a killer. I mean, oh. uh, they, they, you know, the state, they, were, they were doing an enormous amount of work, you know, filming and, and, and rehearsing, and that scheduling was, uh, you know, wild. And so I would get these uh, lyrics... <clears throat> at all hours of the day that I had to uh, I had to set to music but then I had to orchestrate them and arrange them and then record them so this is a, a round the clock gig uh, it was extremely um, you know it, it was uh, it was it was it was rough, but again, it was great because there was a spirit, there was an enjoyment, there was a, a realization that we were doing something exciting, and it was you know it was all fun and done. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I'd love to ask briefly about a show you worked on on Broadway, which was the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window. And I, 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 I <laughs> knew you'd do that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Let me have it. <laughs> and. How did the decision come to sort of bring back Lauren Hansberry's play and, and add to it? And oh, well, <clears throat> actually, I, that decision, uh, a friend of mine by the name of Bob Renfield was, a, was again, a beginning fledgling producer. And for some reason, he had a need or a will or a desire to, uh, 
to produce a, a revival or, or to revive or to bring back the sign and city Bruce Lee Winter. Now the, the the interesting thing about that is that the knee had just closed. It was in the early 1970s. And so uh, Bob approached me to write music for this show that he's revising called the sign and city Bruce Lee window. And at the time, Charles, you know, there was a, there's always a, a down moment when a show closes. So I was sort of, uh, you know, at a point where I, okay, I'll, I'll take this gig. And I thought it was going to be a musical. Uh-huh. However, as it turned out, uh, <clears throat> we, it wasn't a musical by any means. It was, it was basically a straight play with, with a, a kind of a Greek chorus on the side that I composed these songs with Charles, with uh, Ray Earl Fox. And he was the lyricist. And uh, it was, that's basically what it was. It, it, we, I was composing these songs that almost had nothing to do with what was going on on the stage. <laughs> you know, so it was, it, I just think it was an ill-conceived, not the most ex- exciting and creative moment of my life. Right, right. And one show you worked on that some people might not know what it's about is Laugh a Little, Cry a Little, which closed out of town. And what was the subject of this show? Well, yeah, that that was a really very interesting and, 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 and I enjoyed very much working on that show because it, it dealt with the immigrants, the Jewish immigrants coming through Ellis Island uh, to, to this country and how they dealt or living, you know, on the Lower East Side. Uh, I was approached by Madeline Guilford, who was, you know, Jack Guilford's wife, and, and Lee Goober. These were the producers. They had uh, gotten Jan Pierce aboard uh, to star, the, the great opera singer. And uh, I was very excited to work with, uh, on this show. I thought it, would, it, 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 I thought it, I just thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, Arnold Hall was a wonderful lyricist. Uh, to work with, he was uh, he was funny and humorous, a little acerbic, but that just made him more interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and we we got along well as collaborators. And and yeah, that's how it happened. We 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 started with uh, Maddie Guilford and, and Lee Goober and Jan Pierce, and and uh, the show was uh, a great success out of town. Uh, the problem with the show happened at the Westbury Music. Fair. I, do, do you know this story? No, no, I don't. I... Well, we were we were doing great. We, we were <laughs> traveling along different tents and and for the summer and uh, here and there all over the the, the, the local area, and uh, we were at the Westbury Fair, and uh, there was a, a matinee performance sold out, and uh, the the conductor had asked me to if if I if I could cover it for him on this particular performance and conduct conduct the orchestra, which I was very happy to do. And uh, Charles, during, because it was in the round, some, one of the crew uh, misplaced a staircase that Jan was supposed to walk down uh, when, when the, when the scene ended and went to dark. So he, he thought there was a stair. There was a staircase, but it was not there. So what he did is he fell. I mean, it was so horrible because I was in the pit, and I actually, through the dim light, watched him fall slowly like a swan down, and he broke almost 
many, many bones. His eyes, it was, it was, his glasses glazed his eyes. It was a oh. horror, horror, terrible experience. As a result, we closed, the show had to close. But you know, there's a good, there's a, actually, there's, a, there's one happy ending to the story <laughs> is that, uh, of course, the show closely was a, a very, very bad, sad moment for all of us. But the only good thing that happened is that because as a result of, of Jan falling and breaking all the bones, it said, he 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 went he got he got all kinds of great medical uh help and he ended up being more healthy uh, <laughs> uh, for his later years than he was before so that did have a happy ending for Jan for me not so happy <laughs> <laughs> oh and what draws you to jewish subjects like laugh little cry little or sydney brucine's window or things like that well, it's not that I necessarily enjoy writing the Jewish-themed shows. I mean, look, I'm Jewish. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, Charles, I'm Jewish. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's not, no, it, yeah, one aspect of the question is is that why, I, it's not as if I wrote Jewish shows because I'm Jewish. I don't think one thing really necessarily had to do with the other. Uh, however, there was uh, there's one reason. I, well, let me just share one quick story with you, which might uh, might throw some light on that question. You know, there was a time, actually, before the Me Nobody Knows, when I was uh, when I was actually creating music for TV commercials, for, for television and radio. And uh, one of one of the commercials I was I was asked to, to compose music for was a BF Goodrich, a BF Goodrich commercial, the tires. Anyway, uh, in those years, I was actually conducting a thirty-piece orchestra for a for a, like a fifty-second commercial with singers. <laughs> so uh, uh, this the song. It doesn't matter. But anyway, I was conducting, we did the commercial, and then the commercial was over, everybody's packing up, and one of the singers came up to the podium and started a conversation with me. And he said, you know, Gary, I detect a certain Jewishness in your arrangement. <laughs> I, said, I said, you must be kidding, right? I mean, it was, in fact... It's crazy. The song was, it's the, you know, it's the sign of the times. It's the sign of the times. Da, 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 da. And I did this big orchestration of it with this commercial and uh, with a tire running and etc. Anyway, I, 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 and it turned out that his name was Jonas Jaffna. And he said, he said, Gary, you don't know this, but I happen to be a cantor at a synagogue on East 75th Street. And I said, wow, that's pretty wild because I at the time lived on East 72nd Street, like a couple of blocks away. He said, you know, he said, I'm serious about this. And he said, I would like to commission you to write a piece of music for the synagogue. This is wild story, right? <laughs> so I, he said, there's only one thing. It's got to be in, it's got to be in Hebrew. So I said, Jonas, this is like crazy, man. First of all, if you're serious, I haven't spoken Hebrew 
since my bar mitzvah. You know, I mean, I wouldn't know a Hebrew thing if I looked at it. You know, I, he said, he said, Gary, I know you can do it. In fact, I have the, I know what I want you to do. I want you to write a Friday night service for the synagogue in any style that you wish. And Charles, that's what I did. And I want to tell you, it's then. This is, and I'm circling back to, to your question about me and Jewish music. <clears throat> when I sat down or sat down to set the the the, the Yiddish the, the 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 Hebrew, all my Hebrew background came back to me since huh. my since my uh, you know bar mitzvah, and it, it it was like a flash that flashed through my brain. And somehow I was able to to write Hebrew and set the Hebrew correctly to music, and it was an incredible experience for me. And that what that led to was a performance at the synagogue on East Seventy Seventh East Seventy Fifth Street. It was a packed house. It was reviewed in the New York Times, and it was among. The first time that sort of rock is actually rock oriented. <clears throat> it's the first time rock music was played in the synagogue. Again, by the way, the singers were Melissa Manchester and Jose Fernandez. <laughs> <laughs> and that um, that idea of the same singers brings me to ask you: when you are writing, be it inside or outside of musical theater, do you often hear specific performers' voices in your head? Well, yes, it's 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 it's. I write for a specific performer who is the specific performer for whom I'm writing. That's a you know roundabout way of saying yes. Of course, I if I know the the singer and I know how the singer sounds, of course that that's the sound is in my brain when I'm when I'm creating music for that particular person. Like for instance, Jan Pierce. Getting going back to him, he he just had a ball singing the score that I had written. You know, I was very pleased and happy, and you know, and honored to have him sing it. However, there was one thing that he 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 asked of me, and he said, "Gary, I want you to do me one favor. I don't care what song it's in, but I I want you to write, give me a high B flat." <laughs> he said, "That's my money note." <laughs> So to answer your question, you know, sure, it comes from different ways. Sometimes the, the performer will ask me, and then other times I'll figure, well, I'll write a B-flat because I know they can do it. <laughs> right. And three great performers that you worked with were Margaret Whiting, Marnie Nixon. Oh, oh my God. <clears throat> They're two, two fantastic, wonderful people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Margaret came to uh we wanted her to appear in in uh, in uh, you know in, in the show and and uh she it was so amazing because when she was called by the casting directors uh to be uh, to to appear she said i she said first of all I'm, are you asking me to 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 be in the show or you are you asking me to audition for the show? And and they said, well, no, actually, we're embarrassed to even ask you to audition. I mean, you're Margaret Whiting, yeah. Well, Charles, she insisted on auditioning, 
and and she learned one of the songs from the show in April. It's one of the songs that we did, and she sang it and just knocked us through a loop. It was just amazing, and and that's the kind of person she was. She was so self-effacing and fabulous. Marnie was was known as as the as the as the, how can I say the you know the the, the voice behind the, right. the, the the singer, and this was a first chance for her to get out there in front as as the singer and to be seen as a singer. So she was delighted, <laughs> and and it was a, it was a pleasure to work with them. They were really fantastic people. Oh yes, and how did the the show they were both in Taking My Turn? How did that come about at first? Well, taking my turn was was from actually Bob Livingston uh, <clears throat> was the director. He was, as you know, the director of of, of the Me. And taking my turn, he as the Me was to a particular uh, how can I say it? It, the subject matter of the Me was children and and their hopes and anxieties and terror. He wanted to write the other side of the coin and the other side of the age range. So the me is sort of the other, I mean, the taking my turn was the other side of the coin of the me nobody knows. And uh, he asked me and Will to, to do the score, which we did more than happily, and, and that, that's how it came about. And do you prefer writing shows with small casts like Taking My Turn, or do you have a preference? Not really. I, I I think it's, you know, the show is is about the show, not about the cast. <clears throat> so if, if a cast, if a show that I love and is worthy of me wanting to do it, or or I'm worthy of it, it doesn't matter if it's two people or one person or or ten or twelve or fifteen, you know, like uh, so that that's basically what it is. And is there a show that you worked on that you especially felt should have come to Broadway that didn't? Well, there was a actually Sherman Yellen, the book writer, brilliantly talented, oh, yes. who I think you actually interviewed. Yes, I did. I did. I don't know if he mentioned Treasure Island that he and I and Will Hope worked on. Treasure Island was produced out at Theater Three in Port Jefferson. It was wonderfully successful, and it was you know Sherman did a brilliant he did a wrote a, a brilliant book for that musical. And uh, it was very, very well received, and it somehow never made it its way to to the place where I felt it should be. So that that was a sad, a sad thing. And your um, your last Broadway show to date was Platinum, and how did that come about? The hey. <laughs> <laughs> Child, these, you know, these questions, this is like an hour right here. I could do an hour on platinum. You know that. Right, right. Now, in any event, uh, platinum actually, uh, it started as a show called Sunset that Will Holt, Will Holt had an original idea about a show called Sunset, which was uh, more or less the story of platinum, but it was, it was the first iteration. And uh, we, James Coco, who was a, at the time a friend of Will Holt, loved that show, and he actually wanted to direct it. And he arranged for the Manhattan Theater Club, who again, was, which was just starting on the on the upper on the upper east side. Uh, he asked them to. He asked for an audition. We auditioned it for the Manhattan Theater Club. They loved it and wanted to mount it. 
And uh, at that point, uh, Jimmy Coco or James Coco bumped into Alexis Smith at Bloomingdale's houseware department. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, I'm working on this show. And he, he got her crazy about the show. And that's how Alexis Smith came aboard. And, uh, and anyway, we developed that show. It, it went to uh, the Buffalo Arena up in, in Buffalo, New York. It was a smash hit. Uh, Tommy Toon was the director. And he did a brilliant, fantastic job. And uh, believe it or not, after we opened with the most incredible reviews and, and, and great potential, Tommy had a falling out with the producer. I really don't want to go into why they fell out or how they fell out, but it was a fallout. And he walked. Tommy Toon walked away from this hit show. And uh, we were, I was bereft. I, I, you know, it was just terrifying. It was horrible. However, the producers after this got a hold of Joe Layton. And they brought aboard Joe. And Joe, once he came aboard, the show sort of took on a whole different, uh, it, it was, it was different. We, we ended up going out to California. We, uh, Paramount film, the film, the Paramount films got behind us and they invested in the show. We actually, uh, worked on the show out at the, on the Paramount lot. It was very exciting, but Joe was a kind of a person. Well, how can we put it this way? Um, it was a hit when Tommy did it and it was a flop when Joe did it. <laughs> And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and what was it like working with Alexis Smith? And a total pro. She was fantastic. You know, every time I would get up in the morning, we'd have an early, let's say, 9 o'clock rehearsal. Charles, she'd be there since 8 o'clock in the morning, tapping, learning how to tap, and, and studying her, her dances. She was a, an amazing talent. I just can't say enough about Alexis Smith. She was she was terrific. She was great. And how did the production of Sunset with Tammy Grimes off Broadway come about? Then, well, let's say this years, a couple of years after the show closed on on Broadway, and we were so devastated. <clears throat> Will wanted to to bring the show back to its beginnings, but when it was called Sunset. So we had this idea to take it to uh, the Village Gate, and uh, we we got uh, Tammy Grimes to come aboard, and we got it up and, and did it at the, uh, down there. However, for whatever reasons, it was it, it, it just it never worked, and we had a lot of problems with that show. Tammy was <laughs> certainly an, an interesting person to work with, never boring. <laughs> We got it was dismally re, re, re reviewed, and the review was so bad that it never actually was printed. Wow. So we the show closed on opening night. Wow. So it was one of those really unfortunate moments. Oh yes, and we we should mention for everyone too that they will have the chance to see a version of Platinum called Platinum Dreams at Fifty Four Below in January, and I know I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you for saying that. Now, this is a whole different animal, the child's, uh, you know, enter Stevie Holland and her, her brilliance and, uh, 
you know, I'm so fortunate that she happens to also be my wife, <laughs> and, you know, which is a blessing right there. But Stevie has for years been been such a fan of the score, the original score from Platinum. And what she's done is she's she's taken the score and reconfigured it and 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 created really a basically a, a new version of Platinum. That's why it's called Platinum Dreams. And we as a result she wrote the book and she's starring in it. And it's you know it's sort of very exciting <laughs> that you know that we're doing this, and it's really because of Stevie's uh, her 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 need and her will and her desire to see this score come to 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 be appreciated for what it for she thinks and believes it is, and she's she's been a, she's done an amazing job, and I can't wait for you to listen to it and see it. Oh yes. And you have worked with her on quite a few albums and projects and things. And what is it like to balance a personal and professional relationship? Well, again, the balance is 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 so balanced that it's it's not even an issue. Uh, you know, living with a person like uh, Stevie, well, Stevie, <laughs> is on twenty four seven, which is what we basically spend our lives together, is uh, is a constant joy and and an exciting adventure. Every day has a new you know a new aspect to our to our relationship. Uh, she's incredibly talented as a as a as as I'm sure you know as a singer, a vocalist. But beyond that, and uh, as a as a lyricist, and as a brilliant book writer, uh, all of which she's doing with uh, you know with with Platinum Dreams. So it, it's it's just you know, and it's great to to have somebody as a collaborator that you could talk to 24 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> right, and. Another uh, show you two did together was Love, Linda, and how did the idea for that come about? Well, Love, Linda was another another situation with, uh, we actually were looking for a, a one-person theatrical vehicle for Stevie. And uh, we were so, it was provocative that we came upon Linda Porter and and the realization that here was a woman who was so influential and meaningful in the life of Cole Porter, and yet nobody knew anything about her. And and most people didn't even a didn't know that 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 they were married, that that Cole was married. They did, and they didn't know about their special relationship. And Stevie wanted to to create a show that examined that relationship using all of Cole for without well, using Cole Porter's music. And what she did is she took these these songs that you know you are totally out of context and gave them a context and and gave them a, a trajectory and an arc that was meaningful and related to the book that she wrote. And and uh, my job was to orchestrate and arrange these songs that everybody knew in one context. And here I here I created uh, you know the, the, a, a sort of how can I say a, a bed for these songs to, to lie in and at the same time uh, keep the narrative going forward. And 
how different did the arrangements end up being in, and what was that process like of changing them? Well, again, my see, my job in that was a little. How can I say it was, it was unique for me at this stage of my career because I was actually called upon to arrange another composer's music. <laughs> so, as the arranger, I had to to uh, somehow find a way to 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 express this another person's music using my own in, intuitive uh, creativity, yet not step on that composer, you know, and, and make this an ego trip. So at the same time, uh, there were two things working. I had to be creative, yet not be, uh, how can I say, uh, overbearing. And, and, and yet I wanted to be provocative and, and give the score a, a sound that perhaps people have yet to hear or hadn't at that point heard a lot of these songs being sung in that way. Uh, like, for instance, uh, well, well, again, Miss Otis regrets, you know, let's say. So I came up with a... So I had to create a rhythmic uh, harmonic bed to to support that melody, giving it a new a, a new sound, and so that was that was fun and and a great great you know joy in, in doing that. Oh yeah, and what was it like in addition to collaborate with Richard Balfi Jr. on the show? Richard, well, Richard was so you're talking about a, a fantastic human being. He's he's great. He's a, a fabulous director. He's he's a wonderful as a human being. He's smart, intuitive. And uh, you know, I, I, what can I say about you know? He he's one of the he's one of the good guys. And what was the process of filming it like when you did that? Oh well, we you know we actually filmed filmed the show did the smack dab middle of the pandemic, and uh, that was a challenge right there. However, we were able to get together an amazing crew. Uh, a film crew uh, and, and uh, everybody else, the, the lighting, the, the staging. We found this uh, theater up here in Westchester County, and and uh, we were able to film that show in one day. Wow! You know, listen. Thank goodness, uh, Stevie is. Uh, you know, she's a she's a Viking. So <laughs> for her, it was cool. <laughs> right. And. What was overall? What was the pandemic like for you, both personally and creatively? Well, look, like it, it was, it was frightening. Like it was for everybody. It was, you know, frightening for you, for me, for everybody. And and and, and how do you deal with this? Well, it left a lot of time alone. Uh, and and what do you do with your time alone? If you're creative, you create. And so I took advantage of this time to to work on a lot of the uh, a lot of shows that I had. Uh, for whatever reasons, not completed, uh, and 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 it was during that time that we did most of our work on on the you know on Platinum Dreams. So that was you know one good thing came out of this this the horror of that of that terrible pandemic. And do you feel that with working on Platinum Dreams now and things that you're working on now, do you feel that your songwriting style has changed over time? Well, I, that's a you know peculiar question. In so far as uh, it's, it, I don't, I, I'm not aware of 
a, a writing in a style per se. Uh, in other words, I don't call what I do stylistic in that sense. It's it's what I do, and uh, I'm not aware of any changes per se. <clears throat> My approach to writing has never changed. My enjoyment of writing has never changed. Uh, you know, the inspirational aspect has not changed. If anything, it's increased. Uh, I'm I'm you know much more happy now and 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 much more creative and and. and uh, industrious, shall I say, than I've ever been. So, uh, now, is it different? I, I don't think so. It's just, how can I say, more of same. <laughs> <laughs> and the very last question I'd love to ask you is, with such a great career that you've had as a songwriter, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? Oh, boy. <laughs> well... If, 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 you know, if you insist, if you insist on on becoming, uh, you know, a songwriter or or being in his business, you know, a I would say, well, how can I say? Number one, have a very lucrative day job. <laughs> that always helps. But I think when it's all said and done, I think you're not, you know, being serious. I think you have to listen. And trust your own voice. Find that voice. If it takes forever, then then take forever. But ultimately, that should be your goal, to find that unique utterance that's in your soul and your heart and what you want to get out into the world. And then look for every possible opportunity you can get to do that. So that's, that's basically maybe too succinct, but I think maybe truthful and, and maybe effective that that would be my advice okay. does that make sense yes it does it definitely does well thank you so much for doing this it's been an honor to meet you and to talk to you well it's been great to talk to you i'm glad that we, we had a chance to do this thank listeners you. thank you for tuning in and make sure to come back next time when i am joined by veteran stage manager kenneth Hanson. Ken's many Broadway credits include Bubbling Brown Sugar, Sophisticated Ladies, Leader of the Pack, Big Deal, where he was also an understudy, Truly Blessed, and Smokey Joe's Cafe. He also has worked with numerous stars throughout his career, including Jennifer Holliday, Patti LaBelle, Felicia Rashad, Luciano Pavarotti, and even Pope John Paul II during his long time working with the Boys Choir of Harlem. You won't want to miss this interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.